Welcome to the Sandbox. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. On today's episode, we are talking with author and activist Shane Claiborne about some of the work that he's been doing recently on abolishing the death penalty. But before we get into that conversation, we want to remind you that Drew G.I. Hart will be joining us in just a few weeks on Sunday, May 7th, for our next Sandbox Cooperative Live event. Drew's going to be talking with us about his new book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. And you can join us live in Rochester, Minnesota at Studio 324, or you can watch us via our live stream from wherever you are in the world. The event begins at 7 o'clock Central Time, and doors open at 6.30 p.m. If you're joining us online, visit sandboxcooperative.com for information and a link to the live stream. It's going to be a great event, and we really don't want you to miss it. But for now, let's get to today's conversation. We first had Shane Claiborne as a guest for a Sandbox Live event just about a year ago, and it was great to connect with him a bit more this last week. Yeah, and and Shane is an activist, the founder of The Simple Way in Philadelphia, and the author of several books, including The Irresistible Revolution, Jesus for President, and his newest, Executing Grace, How the Death Penalty Killed Jesus and Why It's Killing Us. In the time since we last spoke with Shane, he's been working a lot on the topic of his newest book, most recently working with the Capital Punishment Abolitionist Movement in Arkansas. Just to give you a little bit of background, this conversation has come front and center in Arkansas due to the May expiration date of a drug used in the execution process. And since we've talked with Shane, and it was less than a week ago, Arkansas has executed three inmates, including two on Monday. There is one more scheduled for this week, and four are on hold pending their final appeals. You know, the, just the more that we've been talking about this topic, just the more frustrating it's been. It's become. It seems like maybe we're missing something when we rank near the top of the list of executions, just behind countries like China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq, and just ahead of Pakistan, Yemen, and North Korea. That's a, just a stunning list <laughs> yeah. to be in company with, right? It's, it's just amazing. Um, there's so much to unpack in this conversation and so many things for us to continue learning. But we do want to say thanks again to Shane Claiborne for taking some time to talk with us about this topic. And with that, we want to welcome you to episode 42, Shane Claiborne and the Nagging Problem of Jesus. All right. Well, where do we start, man? That's this. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, so I know that the last time we talked to you, uh, the last time I saw you was last July. And the last time you were talking with all of us was last May. It's been not quite a year. And it sounds like there's been a lot of stuff that you've been up to in the last year. I don't, yeah. I I mean, I, I go by that each day has enough worries of its own kind of thing, you know? So it's, yeah, I don't even remember what all has gone on from when we were together last. Well, I, I don't know. The last time I checked, you were arrested on the street, steps of the Supreme Court in January. And, and you've been I'm just looking at Twitter and, and how you've been advocating with the situation in Arkansas. Yeah, yeah. So much thank going God, on. Uh, we had two stopped executions yesterday, uh, which seems appropriate the day after Easter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like if there was one day? Oh, yeah. Blows the mind, yeah. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we got a lot more on the horizon. Um, uh, we, we also have Ivan uh, case in Virginia where there's, uh, well, there's presumed innocence. You know, there, his, his conviction was based on... Uh, two false testimonies that have both gone on record saying that they uh, uh, d- d- testified falsely, accuse, you know, accusing him of the, of the, the crime, and, uh, and yet he's still facing, the, you know, execution. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's no so- shortage of 
death to be getting in the way of these days. <laughs> Lot, lots of good things to go to jail for. That's what, what I tell the kids, you know, you go to jail for doing something wrong and you can go to jail for doing something right. And uh, there's a lot of good folks that have gone to jail for doing good stuff, uh, like mm. the Lord Jesus for starters. But yeah, yeah, yeah. so we'll, we'll uh, yeah, we'll have our trial and everything. But the worst part about it was that we, uh, a part of our stipulation for our arrest is that we can't get arrested again. <laughs> we, get, we get like six months in jail. So, uh, you know, uh, so it's just so many good things to go to jail for, but we have to behave ourselves. So, yeah. <laughs> so how many times have you been arrested then? Oh, I don't know. I like <laughs> 20 or 30 or I don't know, something like that. But when I, I'm, I'm a small timer, man. When I was in trial, I'm on trial with Father John Deere. You know, he's like legend uh, of, you know, Catholic resistor. And he and Art Laffin, they both cumulatively have probably 150 arrests or something. So they're on trial and the judge says, how many times y'all been arrested? They're like, Oh, 80 or so, you know, and they go, <laughs> we are men with deeply felt convictions. You know? <laughs> so with all the work that you've been doing on the death penalty, what's, what's happening on the ground in Arkansas right now that you're aware of? Well, there's a lot of, there's some incredible folks. Um, uh, ArkansasAbolish.org, uh, uh, the Arkansas Coalition Abolish the Death Penalty. Those guys um, and ladies are just heroic, you know, working around the clock, um, uh, Death Penalty Action is sort of a national organizing group that I've been a part of. The the that's a new group that's started up to really do some direct action on the ground uh, around situations like Arkansas. So that's kind of our inaugural um, uh, event there. That my friends are down there coming alongside all the local organizers. Um, but I mean, it's 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 sort of mind boggling that uh, I mean. Uh, Arkansas hasn't executed anyone in, in like over a decade and yet now has, you know, eight executions lined up in, in a matter of 10 days. Um, so every one of those has a different, you know, uh, kind of dynamic of resistance. Um, and uh, there's some, you know, a couple of cases where there mental mental health and intellectual disability. There's um, you know, always cases where uh, someone's guilt is, you know, and innocence is, is in question. Um, and so, you know, I, there's all kinds of uh, dynamics. But uh, what's interesting is that Arkansas um, is one of the most Christian states, you know, when it comes mm -hmm. to the population of Christians. And it, it's kind of in the top five, usually, you know. Um, and, uh the governor, the attorney general, many of the power, powerful leaders there have, um, you know, been talking about Easter and being in church on Easter and Christ is risen, you know, and happy Easter and all this. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the next day are working overtime to uh, push these executions mm -hmm. forward that were set to begin the day after Easter. I mean, it really breaks my heart. I, I think that it's kind of raises a question of we lost the, we missed the whole point of Easter, you know, that mm -hmm. this, uh, that, because uh, I, I think when we, um, you know, worship and execute an risen Savior on Sunday and then, you know, Monday, uh, get back at the work of trying to execute people, it just, that, that, contradiction um is is very troubling so but that's what we've been working at you know i i think that we um uh 
see that resistance from a you know judges, a federal judge. It went all the way to the Arkansas Supreme Court that stopped these executions. And then, I mean, this baffles the mind too. The attorney general went to the Supreme Court. So the irony of that, you know, a conservative state that's often talking, you know, we don't want the federal government meddling in our affairs, like their highest state court blocked these executions and they went to the federal level to try to, you know, overturn their own court. I mean, just, so I think what's so clear though, is that the folks that continue to advocate for the death penalty are the wrong side are on the wrong side of history? I, you know this thing is on its way out. There's resistance everywhere, um, and there's just so much better. You look at all of the resources, the massive amounts of money and energy that are being spent to keep this thing in place, and you're like. There's so many better ways that we can serve victims' families, that we can prevent violent crime, that we can do real restorative justice work, and also we can keep, you know, people that are eminently dangerous uh, away from, you know, folks that they could cause harm. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there's just, you know, most of the world's moved on from it, and it's it's time for Arkansas to not stand alongside places like Saudi Arabia, you know, like, let's, let's act like we're Christians, you know? So, yeah. One of the things that I'm, that I'm wondering, and I've tried to make sense of this for a while. Like, I think the few of us sitting here, you know, we kind of would agree that the death penalty is not an effective means of punishment and it's not helpful in any sort of ways. And especially as Christians, you know, that's something that we really shouldn't be advocating, but there's a lot of people that are what's the thought process. I mean, do you have an insight? I mean, as you're doing so much work with it, you've got to be talking to people that, yeah, you know, obviously have different views from you. Like, what are you bumping into in terms of why they still think it's good? Yeah, well, uh, so I think that th- this is an interesting question, and it's one of the reasons I got so involved on this because, um, I mean, you look at it, it, it costs more money to keep the death penalty than alternatives to it. So there's a whole movement of conservatives that just on the fiscal side, but also on the side of like, how much do we trust our government? You know, do we really trust our criminal justice system with the irreversible power of who lives and who dies? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I think those are really great questions that we see a lot of conservatives involved now. Um, there, there's the issue of deterring, deterring crime, you know, like, um, police chiefs came up with a list. It was like hundreds of police chiefs came up with a list of some of the things that deter crime. And, and there were all kinds of things on that list. And the death penalty was at the very bottom, you know? Um, uh, so there's the issue of, of innocence, you know, so many folks that we now know are innocent after they, they were sentenced to die. Um, and, 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 and I think, uh, very, eerie uh, connection to um, our history of race and the legacy Mm. of slavery and lynching, how it, um, the kind of descendancy of that into the current practice of death penalty. So there's a lot of uh, reasons that, uh, like for the movement for black lives and and folks concerned about racial justice, that the death penalty, uh, abolishing the death penalty does make the top of the list of things that we need to do. So the question is like, how in the how in the world do people still support it? And what I found that was so troubling is the answer is the Bible, and mm. that um, there's been a theological um, uh, kind of underpin of the, this this kind of whole backbone of this uh, has been the Bible, and and that's why the Bible Belt is the Death Belt. I mean that mm-hmm. that's 
wherever Christians are most concentrated is where uh, the death penalty is flourishing, you know, uh, or succeeded. So I think that's the part that that's so troubling. And um, so, so I, you know, I think we've got to do some really good theology and look at things like uh, an eye for an eye, you know, which, you know, I look at in my book and um, uh, uh, the, the different Romans 13, you know, all authorities established by God and some of those things that have been used by Christians in particular um, to justify the death penalty. Um, and, and of course, we've got the nagging problem of Jesus, you know, who said, you've, you've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, you know, there's an even better way. And, uh, and you know, the first several hundred years of Christianity uh, where every major Christian spoke unilaterally against violence, including mm-hmm. the death penalty. I mean, it's just uh, unmistakable that the uh, the early Christians and their interpretation of what happened as Jesus died and rose meant an end to the death penalty. Um, and, and uh, you know, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, or as I like to say, you know, he was the water poured on the electric chair to short circuit the whole system of death. So now death is done. And that's the message of Easter, I think, you know, as, as we stand on the side of life. Um, but I, I think we got to do some hard work engaging Christians that uh, continue to use the Bible as a weapon on this mm-hmm. issue. Um, and, and I mean, I've even got really conservative rabbi friends that find this mind boggling. Uh, one of my friends uh, who we don't agree on everything. He's like, we are eye, we are eye to eye on the death penalty. And he said, um, Jewish folks have been against the death penalty for ages. He said, even though it's rooted in the in the Hebrew scriptures, the criteria for actually executing someone was so uh, prohibitive that the rabbis said, if we execute more than one person every 70 years, then it's a bloody court and we've got to mm-hmm. rethink our system of justice. So the irony is my rabbi, rabbinical friend was telling me is that um, it's Christians that are using the Old Testament, the Jewish scripture as a justification for uh, the death penalty, and that's what you know. I think is is really uh, baffling mm-hmm. that the Jews don't. You know, they abolished the death penalty before we we have, and uh, um, and we've got Jesus. You know, that should be, I think, <laughs> surely right. the, the final the final uh, blow to the death penalty for us. But yeah, you think so? Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. The nagging, the nagging problem of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just keeps I got getting that in the way. My buddy uh, Dale Resinella down in Florida. He's a uh, chaplain on death row, and he talks mm-hmm. about that all the time. But you know, it, it's true. You look at Jesus saying, "Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy." You look at Jesus's uh, one major documented uh, uh, event, you know, interaction with the death penalty is the woman caught in adultery. Um, because incidentally, you, you notice as you look at Scripture that murder wasn't the only death-worthy crime. There's like th- over 30 death-worthy mm-hmm. crimes in Scripture, um, including like witchcraft and working on the Sabbath day, you know. So <laughs> I, I always say like we'd have <laughs> lots smaller churches if we really went with the biblical death penalty, you know, and <laughs> kill your kids for playing with a Ouija board or talking back to their parents. Those were, those were capital crimes, you know. But Jesus interacts with this woman in adultery and, um, you know, tells the guys that are ready to kill her, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And, of course, you know, the, the, they all drop their stones and walk away. 
And I love that because you, you get this beautiful sense of what God is like in Jesus. And um, the only one who had any right to throw a stone had absolutely no desire. And the closer we are to God, the less we want to throw stones at other people. I, I think that's that's the point that this is this is a love story. It's a grace story. And of course, he tells a woman, you know, um, go and sin no more. But he also looks around. He goes, where'd they all go? Where'd all the guys go? <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful, a beautiful interruption of an execution mm. yeah. in that story. So a, a phrase that I, I keep hearing and I, and I really struggle with it is this uh, this understanding that we brought him to justice or we brought somebody to justice. I think it cheapens what the word justice means. And you're a person who is constantly working for peace and justice. And so what, what's your take on this phrase and how it's just been used? Yeah, it's it's a uh, a, a tricky word because yeah. we... We, we all use it in different ways. You know, I mean, one of the, uh, some of the biggest proponents of the, argue, uh, the, the death penalty, including the attorney general in uh, Arkansas right now at this moment, is saying we, want, we need justice for the victims. The, the question, I think, is like, what, what, what is true justice? And we're conditioned to think of justice um, sometimes as like, what did someone do wrong? And what did what did they deserve as punishment for that crime? I think that's how a lot of our criminal justice system works. You know, mm. what law did they break, and what do they deserve for punishment? Um, and and yet, when I look at the biblical concept of justice, it's very different from that, and it's asking a whole different set of questions. Um, the, at the heart of biblical justice um, is this idea of setting things right again of restoring uh, restorative justice because uh, the, the words righteousness and justice went interchangeably in, in the, the biblical concept. You know, and one of my friends says the best translation we have in English would be restorative justice. So God's justice is asking a different set of questions. You know, what harm was done and how do we heal that harm? How do we heal the wounds of that? Uh, even the idea of shalom and so many things are like setting things right again. And especially when you think of capital crimes, some of our most violent crimes, like there's it, it, there's no way that we, we think of uh, justice as it's going to bring someone back again. You know, um, like and, and it's a little easier as you think of the eye for an eye thing to think in terms of like property damage. You know, if someone does 500 damages worth of damage to your car, they should pay you five hundred dollars or whatever. But like when it comes to taking someone's life. We just have to, I think, ask much deeper questions about what's going to heal that and how has the community been harmed? Even what could heal, what might have contributed to the person who did this? And, and I think God's justice holds out hope that even uh, that, that those who have been victimized can be healed, but even those who have uh, been the victimizers, you know, those who have done terrible things um, can be healed. Um, and that's why after some of the most atrocious things we've seen in history, like the Rwandan genocide, where thousands and thousands of people were being killed, what they walked away from that was going like, death is the disease, not the cure. We don't want more killing after the genocide. And you see these truth and reconciliation commissions, all kinds of work that is done. Now, I went to Rwanda, and you see these folks rebuilding the country in their prison jumpsuits, and they are helping heal the wounds of what they did. Um, so after like 
the Holocaust, there is what folks have called a death fatigue, that mm-hmm. people went away going, man, we don't want more killing. We, we actually need to heal from this. Um, the same after apartheid fell in South Africa, they, they, you know, they, when, when it came to the new constitution as they reimagined South Africa post-apartheid, um, they said there's a lot of things that we can glean, we can kind of take from constitutions like in the United States with one exception, and that is we have no place for the death penalty. This is only a part of the old world. We don't want that to have any place in the new South Africa. Um, so, you know, I, I think we have a lot to learn from that, um, from, from these places that have, you know, experienced deep trauma. They walk away um, without wanting to create more trauma. And that's exactly what the death penalty does. It does, you know, it promises all of these empty uh, promises like closure and healing. And that's what folks talk about when they talk about justice. And yet, like, I, I, I know a lot of these families that have been so, uh, suffered such horrific violence. And some of them that have managed to get a death, uh, an execution are still really entrenched in the, the, the fear and the anger and resentment uh, of what happened to them, even after the execution. There's other families that I know that like they decided other alternatives, you know, ways forward than the death penalty. And some of them are the most radiant lights, I think, for healing and hope. So uh, that that's why I think, you know, the, the death penalty doesn't serve victims well. It only creates new victims. It extends trauma. You know, it just ensures that the kind of the, the violent trauma continues to spread. And that's why there's so many folks that have been victims to violence that then on the news they see the parents of the person who did that violence um, weeping and they say, my gosh, I realize those are my same tears. And if I pursue the death penalty, I'm just kind of doing the same harm of what was done mm. to them. So folks like Bud Welch, um, whose daughter was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing, he saw Timothy McVeigh's dad on the news and said, my gosh, I don't want to do that to him. And he uh, eventually became one of the most adamant uh, and public voices against the execution of Timothy McVeigh. Because he said, I get to remember my daughter for the wonderful woman that she was as she was killed in the Oklahoma City bombing. Like um, The whole McVeigh family is stigmatized and they've been hurt enough through this. It's not going to do any good to kill Timothy McVeigh. You know, we can find a way to protect more people from being harmed, but it just doesn't make sense to kill him. And uh, it's amazing, you know, and he's, Bud Welch says, like, I never felt closer to God than in the moment where I embraced Timothy McVeigh's dad and we wept together and we realized that we, it was like looking in the mirror, you know, we were mm-hmm. experiencing some of the same pain and they've healed from that together, you know, mm-hmm. and no one's ignoring like the, that's the thing. I think sometimes we think if we don't kill them, then, well, we're just, you know, ignoring what they did. We're absolutely not. I mean, some of these folks that are murder victims, families against the death penalty, they stare that evil in the face over and over and over. Um, uh, in fact, some of them have, have been a part of the restorative story of the person who did the violence now kind of uh, having a second chance at life. And, and that, that's just, I mean, that takes so much courage and, and, uh, they're heroes of mine. I've been thinking about the, uh, the, the case in Arkansas. From what I understand about the, uh, the, 
you know, the process of, you know, with the lethal injection thing, it's the anesthetic uh, drug that's uh, part of the problem. And I mean, it's, I mean, it's huge. But as far as what, what I think the court case is and, and why they're rushing this, is that right? I mean, the, 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 one of the drugs expires on May 1st. And yeah. and they wanted to get a drug from that that they used to use from Europe, but Europe wouldn't sell it to the United States because we wanted to use it for for executions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we have is like we have like a really clear case of states that are involved in illegal drug dealing. I mean, that's there's no other word mm-hmm. for it. We have governors uh, that are buying drugs illegally. Pfizer that made these drugs in Arkansas has said that they've said we I mean these pharmaceutical companies a lot of them want nothing to do with killing people they're creating medicines they want their brand sometimes it's just um, pure marketing you know they want their brand to be known for for saving life not taking life and uh, so you know this this is such a sketchy deal that they've said we want our medications back. Like we, uh, that's happened in Nebraska. It's happened in other cases. There's cases where the DEA has even raided states for their pharmaceuticals that they got uh, to to use to kill people. So uh, there's a great article in the Atlantic on that is on on the illegal dealing of the of the death penalty drugs. Um, so yeah, I mean when you have these things that like. The governor of Arkansas has said these drugs were donated by an anonymous person, you know, basically in a parking lot. You're like, mm, yeah, and, and not to mention that these haven't been, you know, part of the issue, too, is that, like, no one knows where where these came from. They haven't been tested. There's vet- veterinarians that say we don't even allow some of these drugs to be used for animals when we euthanize them uh, because it creates so much, uh, you know, pain and agony and, and like we, like we, so there's just so many issues. Um, and then, um, so then you have states that are like, well, fine, we'll just bring the, the electric chair back, you know, uh, as Tennessee did or the, the firing squad as I think it was Mississippi that did that, you know, or, or so it, it just, so I think what we've got to do is we've got to actually have the courage to say, no, this experiment of the death penalty has failed terribly. And we're going to look back a generation from now in, the, in a similar way that we look back at, at slavery and we're going to say, how in the world did we think that was okay? Um, and, and I think this is a moment for us to have courage, you know, and, and to say we, we don't, you know, we want to be a part of making history. Uh, it doesn't take courage a generation after slavery was ended to go, that was wrong. <laughs> you know, I think it takes courage right now. And that's why we need, you know, uh, faith leaders and, and uh, musicians and artists and athletes and, you know, everyday folks to say no to this uh, so-called, you know, justice of the death penalty um, in North Carolina, it was the medical community that actually said, we are, we, this is a viol- participating in executions is a violation of our oath to do no harm. Um, and we didn't become doctors to kill people. We came, became doctors to save people. And, um, so they refused to participate and to comply with the protocol of the medical personnel being present. And that's part of what has stopped executions in, in North Carolina. So I think it's beautiful. The, me- the medical association has backed them up uh, on that conviction. And so everywhere, I think we can all be a part of resisting 
the, the death and all and violence in all of its forms. But I think we we've got to say uh, certainly that that violence is the problem, not the solution. And violence is wrong when a prisoner does it, and violence is wrong when a governor does it. Uh, and and the Pope has said so beautifully, we've got to reject violence, whether it's legal or illegal. I think one of the things that makes it hard to have some of these conversations with people who are maybe supportive of the death penalty is that, uh, first of all, I think there's just a lot of misunderstandings around like how effective it is. I think just a lot of people still believe that it is effective or does deter crime or those sorts of things. But I think the other part that helps, I think, change the change the perception there is is hearing stories of of other forms of like of actual justice and ways of of bringing about healing that have actually worked i think that actually helps people to be able to see something a little different and then say oh okay so if not that there's at least an alternative that still does what i thought that did yeah do you have any stories from your work with with different people and and kind of connecting with all with uh people who are on death row that maybe could shed some light on some of that for people who aren't aren't familiar with that or don't know what that looks like yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's there's a whole lot of stories, you know, that I, I came across, and and now many of them have become dear friends of mine. But one one, uh, one story that that really moved me was I was actually almost done writing my book, um, and I went to Minneapolis, and and I, I was taught I was speaking about grace, and they said you got to meet this woman here. Her name's Mary. She's just a, a uh, an incredible, incredible person, especially when it comes to grace. And so I went and had dinner with her and she told me her story. And it starts like many of these stories, it starts really hard. Her son was killed uh, in Minneapolis in a random shooting as a teenager um, uh, and, uh, you know, a gun gunfire uh, killed him. And um they found the person that had done the crime and initially, you know, obviously Mary was just devastated and uh, wanted the harshest form of punishment possible, you know, and then she's, you know, she's a deeply spiritual woman. So she said, you know, the spirit kind of started working on me and, and she had this uh, almost kind of a Pentecostal experience where she read this poem that had these two different women in heaven that were talking and it's these sort of angelic figures and the the poem's anonymous she gave me a copy a copy of it it's beautiful but the women can tell from the tint of their halos that there's a blue tint to them and that you know kind of denoted that they had lost their kids uh on earth when they were alive and this one mother she realizes that she's talking to mary uh, the, the mother of Jesus. And she says, oh my gosh, you know, holy Mary. Um, and Mary says back to her, tell me about your story. And she says, I am the mother of Judas Iscariot. Um, you know, my son killed himself. And when Mary read this, uh, Mary back on, in, you know, Mary back in uh, Minneapolis, she said, I realize there's another mother. And she ended up getting to know the mother of O'Shea, the young man who killed her own son. Um, and they created an organization called Two Mothers, where they have a support group for mothers whose kids have been killed, but they also have a support group for mothers whose kids have taken lives, life. And uh, many of them, now their life is taken by the criminal justice system. And these groups are 
Um, they're amazing groups of support and healing for each other. And when there's a, a, a violent crime or a shooting in Minneapolis, they go together and they're able to accompany um, folks on, on, that are traumatized on both sides of the violence. Um, and I look at that and it has so much, uh, it smells like Jesus, you know, and it looks like the kind of stuff that um, I think can really heal some of those wounds. Um, uh, the, the, the end of that story was that O'Shea was eventually released from prison. And, um, when he got out of prison, he said, I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I've got two mothers to welcome me home. And he ended up being uh, a next door neighbor to Mary, uh, this, this woman whose son many, many, many years before when he was a totally different, you know, person had, um, taken that life and they uh, are all, you know, doing incredible work. So, um, yeah, and there's, there's so many variations, I think, of how people have used their pain uh, to try to prevent the same thing from happening to other people or, or to heal the wounds of others. Um, one other story of a drunk driver that took a young girl's life as he had this pattern of drinking and driving and um, finally ended in an accident that killed this young teenage girl. And um, yet years later, the family of that young girl ended up um, building a relationship with this man who had um, killed their daughter in the drunk driving. And they said, well, you know, maybe we can do better than you just regretting that for the rest of your life in a cage, you know. And they ended up now that they've done speaking events together where they go and they speak about drinking and driving. And you imagine, like, it's one thing to hear from a, a parents who lost their kids. It's another thing to also hear from someone who did this terrible thing and lives with the, the in the shadow of that, you know, um, and, and will likely spend the rest of his life in prison too, you know, but I think that's, that's just an amazing, I think there's so many things that part of the problem is that we've wasted so many resources trying to keep this death penalty on life support, you know, trying to keep it going um, that we, we've, we've kind of limited our imagination and our resources that could be leveraged to do incredible restorative justice work and to really uh, provide so many needed resources to victims' families. So what do you feel has been the biggest internal challenge for you throughout this entire process? Um, what is so troubling to me with this issue that is different on a lot of issues is how entrenched our Christianity is in America in support of the death penalty. So, I mean, I've got a letter right here on my desk from um, the governor in Arkansas. And like, I, I know that he's in church and, you know, puts Bible verses on his social media. And like, I don't doubt that he loves Jesus. And I just am absolutely tormented to figure out how, um, those things can be reconciled, you know? So, um, I want to, I want to believe in the, the, it's easy for me to believe in the redemption of someone who's done a terrible crime. I see that all the time. I also want to hold out hope for the attorney general of Arkansas, (laughs) who, but in, and by every sign is my sister in Jesus. And yet, it is very difficult for me to reconcile 
the fact that we are in Easter Sunday services worshiping the same Savior. Um, and I don't say that in a judgmental way. I say that in a way that it's like, how is it possible that our faith can lead us to do such different responses to Jesus, you know? Um, so that's, you know, that I think that's, that's a real challenge. But I continue to reach out, you know, to folks who disagree with me on this. And, and, I, and I continue to pray for them, you know. Um, and I continue to hold the humility that, you know, for a lot of my life, I was on the other side of this issue, you know. Um, but uh, that doesn't make it any easier, you know, last night when, when all I'm hoping is that they can just let the, the clock tick until the death warrant expires. And yet, you know, the attorney general is going to the Supreme Court, like proactively trying to execute folks. So, I mean, and, and I know that like on her lips, on her all the time are, you know, is justice for the victims. And, um, and yet I, I know that we can, we can do better, you know, justice than this. And, um, so, so I think one of the challenges is for all of us to say we grieve with those who grieve. Um, and to be anti-death penalty does not by any means mean we're anti-victim. And, and I think that's one of the challenges is that people need jerk back to going, well, you just don't care about you know, someone getting killed. And it's just the opposite, actually. We care deeply about people getting killed and we don't want to kill someone else to show that killing is wrong. You know, we, we kind of uh, 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 legitimize the very thing that we're trying to heal the world of when we do that. Is everything always black or white, good or bad? Yes or no? Is everything always dualistic? Is it possible to be anti-death penalty and pro-victim? I think this is where, as Shane said, the nagging problem of Jesus comes into play. In the 21st century, I just know that we are capable of resisting dualistic thinking and pursuing a third way. At one point, Jesus teaches, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone strikes you on the right cheek turned the other also. He also says, You have heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he continues, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Love your enemies the nagging problem of Jesus. How do we do this and pursue justice? Could it be that violence is the problem and not the solution? Could it be that in our hunger for justice, we can shift our gaze to a restorative justice that can accelerate the healing rather than extending the trauma? There will still be consequences for our actions and and there will still be judicial and legal processes. That's all still part of it. But in learning from the words of Jesus, we can move beyond dualistic thinking and more and more live into restorative justice where the killing and bloodthirst ends. And while still painful and still a process, we can move toward a place where the healing can begin. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. And a special thanks to Shane for sharing some of his time with us. 
If you're interested in learning more, we'll have links to Shane's book, Executing Grace, as well as the Arkansas Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty in our show notes. And before we end today, just a quick reminder that on May 7th, Drew G.I. Hart will be the guest of our next Sandbox Live event. He'll talk about his new book, Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism. The event begins at 7 o'clock Central Time, and you can join us in person here in Rochester, Minnesota, or online at sandboxcooperative.com. For that and other things going on in the Sandbox, be sure to sign up for our mailing list at sandboxcooperative.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And as always, be sure to share this podcast with someone who might like it. There's always more room in the Sandbox. Until next time, we'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the Sandbox.